Welcome back to the Clerkship Success Series of the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast, where we go through chief complaints in common neurological problems. And today we have with us back again, Dr. Muller, who will go through the topic of cognitive complaints. Now starting with our learning goals by Sonia. So the goals for today are first to discuss the different cognitive domains and their relevant neuroanatomy. We'll then dive into some of the common etiologies and diagnoses for various cognitive complaints, starting with a clinical approach to acute cognitive changes or alterations in mental status, followed by an overview of the common dementia syndromes. And throughout, we'll also discuss how we test different features of cognition on the neurologic exam. Perfect. And as always, we want to set up a framework for our discussion. So Dr. Muller, what is your general approach for approaching uh, cognitive complaints? Yeah, and thanks for having me back uh, for what, what I hope will be a triumphant return uh, to your series. Uh, it's, it's always a delight, and I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. So the, there are different ways to approach cognitive complaints. I think it's one of the types of problems that feels the most nebulous to a lot of learners and to a lot of medical students uh, and, and even residents and even me uh, for that matter. And I think really honing in on what the cognitive problem is, is a good start. So that's the first step. And then based on the nature of that cognitive problem, then honing in on the time course. And so if you hone in on the problem, the first part, you are going to get a better sense of localization where in the cortex and subcortical structures, where in the brain the problem might be, one or more places. And then you narrow down the time course, and that time course will narrow down the types of causes for dysfunction in those regions. Perfect. So first a localization task, and then a time course. Let's talk about these uh, parts one at a time, starting with a type of cognitive complaint. So let's go over a general overview of the cognitive domains, and then we can talk about how each one of these domains relates to neuroanatomy. Yeah, I think that's a great start. So much of what we're going to talk about is cortical anatomy. Of course, subcortical anatomy and the thalamus can be involved in cognition, and even brainstem and cerebellar structures can be involved in cognition. But much of higher level cognition is, is subserved, is supported by cortical structures. And so we will focus most on those. So I think it really is important to have a broad perspective of the most common cognitive domains and not to limit it to memory, for example, or orientation. I think sometimes patients will perceive a cognitive problem as a memory problem when in fact it's something else. And so the cognitive domains that are important include language function, and we can talk a little bit more about that. They include executive functioning. And I have a mnemonic for how, how we remember the elements of executive functioning, uh, which is SOAP, S-O-A-P, so sequencing, organization, abstraction, planning, that higher level functioning. Uh, learning and declarative memory, you know, remembering things that people told you, remembering the different types of cognitive domains, you know, things, uh, remembering those. Uh, we have our perceptual and uh, uh, visual perceptual tasks, uh, and those include things like putting together uh, visual constructions in our mind, sense of direction, sensory motor functioning, what we call praxis, that is knowing how to use uh, things in the world, knowing how to apply our motor function in the world. 
and then uh, social interactions. And, and, and that part of the cognitive element is often sort of uh, uh, something that we notice in our uh, informal aspects of, of the examination. When we're taking a history and we note the way that somebody's interacting with us, the way that they're groomed, the way that they respond to emotional and social cues can be part of, of that element. So those are some of the bigger parts. And, and there's a map through the brain of where each of these tasks has the most support. That's great. And we are going to go through each one of these domains and how they map onto both the exam and also the anatomy. Interestingly, I actually saw a BBC article this morning talking about how patients perceive dementia, for example. And in most cases, in movies, for example, memory loss is the only thing that they present about dementia. Whereas, as you said, there are many different elements of cognitive domains that we must consider as neurologists. Now, talking about these domains and uh, its functions, let's first start off with language. Can we discuss the uh, anatomical localization of language and how to assess for language function? Yeah, and, and I think it, uh, it starts with the language examination. And I always remember that there are six elements to that. So the number is six. So you need to remember six things that you're gonna examine in somebody's language. Four of those are gonna be things you can do without a pen and a piece of paper, and two are gonna be things that you need a pen and or a piece of paper for. And so that can help you remember. And the four that are without a pen and a piece of paper include fluency, the ability to produce spontaneous speech without difficulty or interruptions or hesitancy, comprehension, which is self-explanatory, understanding what you're being told, um, naming, so looking at an object and knowing what it's called, and then repetition, you know, hearing something and being able to repeat it back. So those are those four elements. And then, of course, the ones you need a pen and a piece of paper for are reading and writing. And we always start with fluency because there are uh, two main areas that every medical student learns that support language in the dominant hemisphere, which in the vast majority of people is the left hemisphere. And those include Broca's area, which is in the left inferior frontal gyrus. It's in the frontal lobe, it's more anterior. And that is for language production. And then there is Wernicke's area, which is in the superior temporal gyrus, a little bit further posteriorly, just below the sylvian fissure. And that is going to be for language comprehension. And then there's a connector between those two, the arcuate fasciculus, which helps with repetition and integrating those two tasks. Now, that is obviously a gross simplification of the language tasks, but those are the main areas, that posterior area, the Wernicke's area for comprehension, and Broca's area for more of the fluency and language production. So if you start with fluency, you can get a, a sense of where that patient's language problem might be. If a patient is fluent, whether or not they're making sense, that likely means that that anterior aspect is intact, and the problem may be more in the posterior aspect. So somebody with a fluent aphasia, somebody who is able to produce speech, but it doesn't make a lot of sense, there may be paraphasic errors or something like that, very likely has a more receptive than an expressive problem. Somebody with a non-fluent problem, so somebody who has difficulty finding the words, who's hesitant, who appears to be effortful in producing their speech, more likely has an anterior problem, a, a Broca's problem. And somebody who's completely mute, it can be hard to tell. Uh, and sometimes you have to use language, uh, other aspects of uh, testing language like writing uh, to, to sort that out. And I must caution you, of course, 
one of the important uh, elements is that um, uh, that one aspect of fluency is actually the motor production of speech. So you could have a severe dysarthria, a motor speech production problem, which is not a language problem at all, which may pr uh, produce something that appears on the surface to be non-fluent. So that's just one caution. Great. So six things, six elements of the language exam that you want to remember. Now let's talk about executive functioning. Yeah, so executive functioning is, is one of my favorite things to talk about because I think it's one of the things that's least often tested uh, in the bedside examination, but there are ways to get at problems with executive functioning. And it's a very common cognitive complaint. It's a very common problem for people with dementia and other cognitive disorders. And it's something that can be incredibly disabling. So executive functioning is supported by the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the surface of the prefrontal cortex and other structures, but that's the big part of executive functioning. And as I said before, my mnemonic is SOAP, sequencing, organization, abstraction, and planning. And uh, let's go through a little bit about each of those uh, sort of functions within executive functioning. So sequencing is being able to put together a sequence of tasks, being able to do this and then the next thing and the next thing and sort of being able to carry through that sequence of tasks. Organization is along the same lines, but it's being able to organize those tasks in an appropriate way to reach the execution. Uh, abstraction is hearing something that is not rooted necessarily in the physical world and being able to understand and explain the meaning of it. And then planning is sort of uh, planning forward. So one of the best ways to test executive functioning at the bedside and really go through all of those, uh, those components is to get somebody to draw a clock. Because if you get somebody to draw a clock, they have to be able to consider the clock in an abstract format. They're gonna draw a circle with some numbers in it, which represents the clock. They're gonna to have to organize those numbers and sequence them, them in order from one to 12 along the face of the clock in the right place. They're gonna to have to plan ahead so that the, the 12 and the six are at the top and the bottom and the three and the nines are at the sides and then they're filling out the other ones in the right places. So they don't you know, just shoot right out of the gate and put, 12 numbers and only have filled out two thirds of the clock, for example. And then we ask them to put the numbers in, you know, or the, the hands in and point the time, which is a very abstract uh, process. And so the abstraction part would be something like show the time so that it's 10 past 11. 10 past 11 for somebody who has difficulty abstracting is very difficult. And you have a little hand and a big hand and they mean different things. And the, the big hand is at the two, but that's not a 10. I mean, there's a lot of abstract thinking going into that. So as a screening examination for somebody with significant uh, executive dysfunction, the clock drawing is really great. The other one I like to test for abstraction is similarities. Uh, and so when you ask somebody about similarities, you're really asking them to understand an, on an abstract level. And one of the things we might start with is what is similar between a banana and an orange? Um, and uh, a, an abstract similarity between those two would be they're both fruit. A more concrete similarity between those two might be that they both have peels. And then you can move along. You know, you use other prompts. What about a song and a painting. I mean, that's very abstract. It's very difficult to pick something concrete that's similar between those two, but you know, somebody thinking abstractly might be able to say that they're works of art. What about a watch and a ruler? Well, they both have numbers on them, but that's a little concrete. 
Or you could say they measure things uh, in different ways. One measures length and one measures time. So those are nice ways to uh, test abstractions. So I think if you're assessing somebody with cognitive complaints, uh, one really nice task that you might want to get them to do is the clock. And you may want to ask about abstraction. I think those are two ways to really get at some of the elements of executive functioning. Great. So executive functioning, localizing to the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, the SOAP mnemonic. And for neuro exam, we want to be screening with a clock, drawing a clock, and test patients on abstraction. Just before we move on to the next area of cognitive functioning, one of the parts of neuroanatomy that I think causes learners the most trouble, and it was always the most confusing to me, was the organization, the relative organization of the prefrontal cortex, of that frontal lobe anterior to the motor structures. And one way that I think of them is sort of by three surfaces. We talked about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, that lateral surface of the prefrontal cortex, and that supports executive function. Then there's the mesial frontal regions and the anterior cingulate. And that's vertically oriented. So I always think of that as the thing that supports get up and go. Uh, and so motivation, task-specific behavior, um, things like that are going to be supported by mesial frontal lobes. People with a lesion of the medial frontal lobe might have abulia or, uh, or lack of motivation. Um, somebody with seizures involving the mesial frontal cortex might be hypermotor, might be hyperactive, and then probably that's because of its overactivation of the same thing. And we'll come back to uh, a little bit later social behavior, but some of that is supported by orbitofrontal uh, cortex and by the connections between the orbitofrontal and mesial temporal cortex. So just to think about it in those three ways, dorsolateral prefrontal is executive, mesial is your get up and go, and then the orbitofrontal is going to be more social. Great. Perfect. And Next, we have on our list of cognitive domains, learning and memory. So I think it might be worth discussing, first of all, the types of memory there are. Yes, there are a lot of different types of memory. I think the one we think about is declarative memory, sometimes called uh, explicit memory. And, and that can be further divided into episodic and semantic memory. So, you know, semantic memory is just things, you know, knowing what the capital of North Dakota is or something like that, just facts. Uh, episodic memory might be remembering things that happened in your life, you know, uh, uh, but, but again, facts that you would be able to declare or say to somebody else. And when we talk about memory encoding, we're, we're really, I think, going to focus more on that. But then there is also sort of non-declarative types of memories, things that aren't necessarily something that you're asked a question and say, but but more implicit types of uh, types of memory processes. Those can include emotional memories. They can include procedural memories and things like that. And then there's uh, shorter term memories, uh, and and those are more related to attention. And we often categorize that as sort of your working memory. You know what you need to do in the task, the things you need to remember in the moment. As I'm talking to you now, I'm keeping in my mind what I just said what the next thing is going to come out of my mouth and sort of what I'm doing in the moment to stay organized on that task. And that that's a different type of memory task. So those are sort of the three domains, but we're going to talk more about that explicit or declarative memory when we talk about testing memory. Very nice. Now, uh, memory is an active area of neurological research, and it's a complex uh, set of sequences uh, in the brain. But if we want medical students to take away from this episode, can you tell us some of the neuroanatomical systems that they should think of when they think of memory? 
yeah, I, I'm, I'm a simple person, as you know, and I like small lists of things. And so as uh, there were six things to test in memory, and there are four uh, to think about, or there are six things to test with language, and there are four to think about in memory. And the four steps in sort of the process of declarative memory are going to be registration, so paying attention and hearing and taking in what you've just been told, encoding, storing that, so moving that from your working memory and your attention into sort of long, the, starting the process of putting that into longer term memory, consolidation, which is the process of storing that into long term memory over time, and then retrieval, which can happen at any time, and that's bringing that memory out and declaring it again. Registration is supported by the structures that support attention. So that we've talked about in, the, in one of our previous podcasts, the ascending reticular activating system allows you to be alert. The frontal subcortical structures and circuits allow you to pay attention. Uh, so it's sort of a broad structure. And if somebody's not attending, there's no film in the camera and you're really done. If somebody has a problem with their attentiveness, you're really not gonna be able to test reliably any of the other elements of memory. Encoding is mainly those mesial temporal structures. The hippocampus is really important in this. And this is why people with damage to the hippocampal structures are going to have problems with encoding memory. People with transient dysfunction of hippocampal structures, such as in the case of transient global amnesia, are not going to be able to form memories. Uh, retrieval uh, includes reactivation of a lot of those temporal circuits, but also some connections between the frontal and temporal structures. And then consolidation is really a, a long-term process, which happens over hours, days, weeks, months, and uh, involves uh, diffuse uh, cortical structures. A couple of important things about consolidation, and I always like to bring these up as sort of, uh, because we're a neurology exam prep podcast and we like to think about studying. Things are better consolidated the more often they are retrieved and re-encoded, retrieved and re-encoded, retrieved and re-encoded. And there is a, an approach to studying or learning called retrieval practice, which we won't get into, which is basically a way of prompting yourself to retrieve information over and over and encode it, re-encode it, that allows you to consolidate things more diffusely and in a much solid, uh, more solid way and to generate a memory schema, you know, connections between different memories that allow you to retrieve it, even if, uh, if you mi you're missing one element of that memory. Uh, and a uh, couple of other things that are important for the process of consolidation include sleep. So it's very important uh, to be able to sleep in order to consolidate memory. For those of you thinking about studying for tests, you need to get good sleep when you're studying. All-nighters are probably counterproductive. And emotional state, you know, people that are comfortable emotionally feeling okay are going are gonna to be better with, and more effective with that consolidation task too. So a couple, couple little bonus study tips uh, added into the memory process. Very nice. And I think most of our listeners are undergoing through all these steps, um, the registration, encoding, retrieval, and consolidation as they listen to this podcast. Some of them might be even falling asleep. This is very meta, Charlie. <laughs> I'm feeling very meta right now. Oh, perfect. Um, so how do we test for memory at the bedside? Yeah, so we can really walk through all of these uh, steps, right? You know, one of the most common ways we test for verbal memory is giving somebody a list of words, three or five words. And uh, ideally, they're words that are not directly related to each other because we don't want to allow them easy schemata or, or connections between these words uh, to remember. We want to consider them 
all in a row. So you give somebody a list of words, three or five words. Neuropsychologists use huge lists of words, you know, uh, to test memory. You ask them to repeat them back to you, and that way you're ensuring that they have registered um, the words and that they're attending to you. And then you wait a period of time and ask them again, and that's testing retrieval. Of course, we are not testing consolidation at the bedside. We'd have to wait a very long time or come back at some many days later in order to know whether they've consolidated that information. Uh, on occasion, I do have patients who will uh, repeat the three words I asked them months ago when they come back for their outpatient follow-up. So, uh, but, but they do that more for fun and to show me how well they're doing than, uh, than any testing purpose. In the retrieval process, and sometimes sorting out a difference between encoding and retrieval is giving somebody cues. So if somebody cannot remember one or more of the list of words that you gave them when you gave them the memory prompt, you don't know whether that was a problem with the information going in or a problem with them getting that information out. And so one way you can sort that out is with cues. So if you gave them the word like orange and you give them the cue that it's a color and they immediately bring it back, that's a clue to you that this is a retrieval problem and not an encoding problem. The information went in, they just had difficulty getting it out, but with a cue, they got it out. Great. So next on our list of cognitive domains is perceptual motor functioning. So can we talk about the anatomical and localization of that and how do we examine for that function? Yeah, and, and, and you know, there are a lot of different elements to perceptual motor functioning and it, it can get very complex very quickly. Um, all of the things, I, you know, I, I would, divided into two main sort of categories. One is the more anterior motor, a higher level motor functioning, which is praxis, you know, abil the ability to uh, use your motor functioning to, uh, for tools or to engage or for work. And that does require higher level conceptualization. So a praxia uh, can sometimes be related to frontal or parietal uh, dysfunction. One way to test idiomotor apraxia, you know, one's ability to conceptualize the use of tools is to ask them to pantomime a, a task, you know, show me how you would use a comb to comb your hair. And you want to see them holding their hand as if they're holding a comb, not running their hands through their hair, their fingers through their hair or something like that. And then you have the, um, that, that sort of praxis. And then you have the, the functions that are in the posterior aspect of the head, those visual spatial functioning. And that can get very complex very quickly, and we're not going to get into it in a lot of detail. But basically, you have visual information that, that is further processed anteriorly through both the temporal and the parietal lobes. And the pathway between the visual cortex and the temporal lobes, we sometimes think of as the ventral pathway, and that is the what pathway. So that is your ability to process what things are, what they're called you know, colors, uh, recognition of faces, things like that. And then your pathway through uh, the dorsal stream up to the parietal lobe is sort of your where pathway. So understanding where things are in space and uh, occipital parietal dysfunction can lead to uh, things like um, uh, optic ataxia or oculomotor apraxia. So the inability to uh, reach for an object in your vision and conceptualize where that is and plan and all that kind of stuff, or the ability to change the direction of your eye movements uh, to uh, a different direction uh, to an object that you wanted to look at. 
Great. So perceptual motor functioning, testing for praxis, and testing for visual constructs. So the last part of our uh, cognitive domains is social cognition. Now, this is kind of tricky to examine by the bedside, but um, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's easier to observe, you know, and, and this is probably one of the areas where our, uh, our sister field psychiatry uh, uh, has a lot, uh, goes into a lot more depth than we do. And, and the way one behaves and the way one interacts with their environment within our social constructs is something that I think psychiatrists are, are very expert at observing, but something that we can look at. So we often are looking at how somebody is interacting with us as we take the history, as we do the examination. Does this person have appropriate inhibitions? Does this person have appropriate emotional regulation? Uh, do they seem to interact in a way that would be uh, within the usual range of social interactions with somebody else? And a lot of this is sort of a judgment call. When it's very abnormal, it's obvious though. When somebody is very socially inappropriate or somebody has major dysfunction in uh, regulation of their uh, emotional ups and downs in the moment uh, and so on. And um, as I said before, while uh, social interaction and social uh, appropriateness is widely uh, supported throughout the central nervous system, one specific area for neurologists that can be dysfunctional that can uh, lead to problems with emotional regulation and social behavior would be the orbitofrontal cortex. And the most famous example of somebody with an orbitofrontal cortex problem is Phineas Gage. So Phineas Gage had a railway spike that went up through the orbit and through the orbitofrontal cortex. And the story goes, developed a severely socially disinhibited uh, uh, change in their personality that was extremely problematic. So in summary, when someone has a cognitive complaint, what would be your systematic approach for performing a neuro exam for the cognitive domains or sometimes called the mental status exam? Yeah, I think I'm going to start with alertness, attention, and concentration. And that's going to be, the obser that's going to be an observation. Uh, and because as we've said many times before, if somebody's not alert, aware and concentrating, the rest of it is really out the window. And some of that is observations of your interactions, but you can do things like serial sevens from 100 or uh, letter recognition tasks or other tasks to, to, um, to allow somebody to understand, to allow you to understand how well somebody is concentrating. Uh, spelling a word backwards, like world backwards, et cetera, et cetera. And you start with attention. If you don't start with attention, then the rest of your test really loses all its context. Attention supports all the other things we're going to talk about. We do memory, uh, and memory can include orientation. So somebody has to have an intact memory to know what day it is and where they are and, and what year it is and the month, et cetera. Um, and then we can give uh, word lists. So we give a, a list of three or five words. Everybody has their favorite words that they use over and over so that they can remember them. Uh, and, uh, and you ask them at the bedside and then some period of time, several minutes later, uh, at least three, three to five minutes later to ensure that that list has moved out of the working memory. And you can use cues to hone in on whether it's an encoding or retrieval problem. You're gonna do language. We're gonna do at least the four elements. And if we have a pen or a piece of paper and we have some suspicion about uh, a broader language problem, we're, we're going to do uh, reading and writing as well. So those are fluency, which we start with, because if they're fluent, it's probably a receptive problem. And if they're non-fluent, it's probably an expressive problem in general terms. 
comprehension, repet repetition, and naming. Uh, you can uh, test for those motor praxis uh, types of problems if you're suspicious. I don't do this in every patient, but if I am suspicious, I'll do that. So I ask them to pantomime using various tools. How would you comb your hair if I gave you a comb? How you would you hammer a nail, brush your teeth, things like that. Uh, you can test for visual spatial functioning in different ways. You're going to start with visual fields. You're going to check for sensory extinction. Uh, you can get people to bisect lines or uh, draw a picture or things like that. And then we'll move on to the frontal lobe. And the tasks I think that are best for the frontal lobe include the clock drying, the similarities. You can look for uh, other, uh, uh, other types of impersistence or organization difficulties, but at least as a start. And then there are validated tools, uh, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Examination, although you have to be certified to use that, um, uh, and other cognitive tools can help. Great. That wraps up the first part of our framework on elucidating the type of cognitive complaint that the patient has. So the second part is on time course, and Sonia will take the wheel. Sure. So as, as you alluded to earlier, Dr. Moeller, uh, understanding the time course will really help us get at the etiology of what is behind the, the cognitive complaint or the cognitive issue. How does time course help us with the etiology? What are some of the broad categories of etiologies that medical students should know about? Yeah, I mean, I think your big distinctions are going to be acute, subacute, and chronic, just like anything else. Uh, an acute change in cognition is usually going to be something that is secondary to something else. It is unlikely to be a primarily neurodegenerative process if you have a sudden change uh, in cognitive functioning. And those acute problems could be a sudden change in something in the brain. You know, an, an acute language disturbance may be an ischemic stroke. An acute uh, disturbance in, uh, in sensory motor functioning may be an ischemic stroke or a postictal phenomenon, et cetera. It could be a primarily brain problem. But if it's more widespread, and especially if there's more attentional component, then you might be thinking about secondary uh, systemic causes. And the most common cause for acute derangement of cognition with attention and uh, concentration difficulties is going to be what we call delirium. And basically, delirium is an acute disturbance of cognitive dysfunctioning, often with fluctuations, almost always involving attention and concentration, and <clears throat> can be hyperactive or hypoactive, uh, and is usually secondary to one or more underlying medical causes, fluid and electrolyte disturbances, acute illness, infection, et cetera. So we've sort of gone over a little bit about the, the acute causes of alterations in mental status. What about some of the chronic conditions? What causes dementia? Yeah, so you know there are, there are different causes of dementia and I've been, I am not the world's expert on dementia, but I've been to many talks on dementia and uh, most talks these days often include a Venn diagram of some sort with each of the uh, dementia syndromes with overlapping components because people can have elements of both Alzheimer's and vascular dementia, that being the most common. People that have elements of Alzheimer's and dementia with Lewy bodies, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there, there are no hard and fast rules for these. But in general, we're talking about dementia as a progressive neurological condition that is going to lead to progressively worsening cognitive dysfunction in one or more domains that interferes with function. Um, so if it doesn't interfere with function, if somebody has memory disturbance, for example, but is still able to function in their everyday life, then we would call that mild cognitive impairment with an amnestic component. 
Um, but as soon as it causes a significant dysfunction, uh, then we would cause it, uh, call it dementia. As with everything, and this is kind of like the DSM-5, right? You know, you have to say not attributable to some other cause, right? You know, there, mm -hmm. there, there are things that are termed pseudo-dementia, somebody with severe depression who has cognitive dysfunction as a result of that. People who have systemic illness and have cognitive dysfunction uh, related to that, you have to explore very carefully and make sure that it's not attributable to some other cause. But if you do have this pr primarily de degenerative process with cognitive dysfunction, there are a few different causes. The most common would be Alzheimer's. The second most common would be vascular dementia. And those have a, a tremendous overlap, uh, Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. And then there are less common causes, uh, dementia with Lewy bodies uh, and the various frontotemporal dementia syndromes. And there are a number of different types. And then you can have your sort of rapidly progressive causes. Uh, and on that list include uh, uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, a type of prion disease, uh, HIV-associated cognitive impairment, um, uh, and then uh, those related to genetic or metabolic disorders, you know, Wilson's disease, nutritional deficiencies, et cetera, et cetera. Let's dive more into these acute versus chronic issues, and we'll, we'll start with acute. Uh, acute alterations in mental status is a very common console question for neurologists, but it's also something that medical students will probably encounter on many other services, not just neurology. So what is your approach to both the history and the examination, as well as additional workups such as labs? Yeah, I, I, think, I think it starts with the history. You know, you, you want to get a sense of that patient's baseline. Are they frail? Are they more susceptible to developing an acute disturbance? And the more frail they are at baseline, this patient is at baseline, the more susceptible they are to acute disturbances in cognition, the less it will take to cause that acute disturbance in cognition. And so uh, somebody who's elderly with multiple medical conditions, uh, who is, has limited mobility, uh, may have some degree of chronic mild malnutrition, et cetera, et cetera, who is frail, uh, may only need a mild urinary tract infection to become very delirious. Um, whereas somebody who is healthy, robust, uh, not having any major issues at baseline, it should take a lot more. And I think you have to start with that that uh, that step. And I must say, in my experience, I always want to understand the person's baseline, their level of frailty, and that's gonna that's gonna guide me in how how rigorous I'm going to be into into looking for a cause. You know, uh, if somebody like you, Sonia, came in with altered mental status, I, I I'm not going to give up. Uh, I'm, I'm going to look and, and, and make sure because there's no reason for you to have that. As I said, a frail person, a urinary tract infection may be sufficient. Um, and so, and in, in between, you know, that workup is going to, there's a huge list, but I think it starts with that baseline. It starts with a careful examination to make sure that you're not missing some other primarily neurological problem. And then you go from there. And, and, and most people would be looking at fluid and electrolytes, signs of obvious infections, uh, thyroid disease, nutritional deficiencies, et cetera. Those would be the usual things. Mm. Let's turn our attention to the chronic cognitive complaints, um, mostly because these tend to be more primary neurologic issues. And specifically, we'll focus on the primary dementia disorders that you had mentioned earlier. I think this is where our understanding of the neuroanatomy can be particularly relevant. So let's go through each of these primary dementias in, in order of prevalence and just a broad overview of what medical students should know about each one. Uh, and we'll start with Alzheimer's disease. 
Yeah, so Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia. Uh, it, as Charlie alluded to earlier, uh, there are lots of works of art um, uh, displaying people's experience with Alzheimer's disease, and some of them are, are done really well, uh, and I think do explain the process. Um, one of the most common elements of Alzheimer's disease is an amnestic or memory problem. Uh, memory is often one of the core elements uh, that is affected in Alzheimer's disease, and it's that declarative memory and other types of sort of explicit memory that you often are able to pick up on examination, although other types of memory may be involved as well. And that's because of the involvement of temporal, especially mesial temporal structures in the pathology. Visual spatial functioning can also be involved and, and we often see parietal uh, dysfunction as well. And uh, we all know that without the ability to encode and retrieve memories, it becomes very difficult to function in society it becomes very difficult to function socially, and this can be very disturbing to patients and especially disturbing to their families. So if you see a primarily or predominantly memory type of process, slowly progressive with no other underlying cause, you, you would be thinking about Alzheimer's disease. And the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease is not, uh, not fully worked out, but we do know uh, that um, the accumulation of, of amyloid into plaques uh, and, uh, and secondary processes around that uh, seem to play a huge role. So it's, it's an amyloidopathy, uh, mutations of the amyloid precursor protein and, and other proteins that regulate uh, amyloid uh, processing can be uh, involved in genetic Alzheimer's diseases. And uh, pathologically, uh, all of our residents know that we see plaques, which are those amyloid uh, processes, and tangles, which are the, the tau uh, processes within the uh, neuron themselves. Uh, the, the plaques are extracellular and the tangles are intracellular. And the pathological criteria for Alzheimer's disease, which is really the only way you can make a definitive diagnosis, um, uh, include, uh, it, it include observation of plaques and tangles. Treatment, there's no cure. There are ongoing uh, uh, investigations into potential disease modifying treatments. But as it stands at the moment, the treatments are really to help maximize function. And those include cholinesterase inhibitors, uh, and they include uh, NMDA, an NMDA uh, inhibitor uh, as well uh, to decrease uh, glutamate uh, uh, neuronal toxicity and hyperexcitability. Perfect. Let's move on to vascular dementia. Yeah, vascular dementia is complex. And again, I am not the world's expert. I have to add this in, in again because way smarter people than me have spent much more time thinking about this. But other, other than to say, I think it would be fair to say there's a significant overlap between vascular dementia and Alzheimer's dementia. And that most brains, uh, when looked at uh, uh, with people with dementia of suspected Alzheimer's or vascular type have some of both pathologies uh, involved in them. But the idea is that uh, uh, vascularly induced, so uh, small, microscopic in some cases, ischemic damage uh, to cortical and subcortical structures can produce cognitive dysfunction. The classic story with vascular dementia in the past was of something with a stuttering course, you know, accumulation of strokes over time with clear, you know, steps downward. Uh, but I don't think we think that uh, anymore. We think that you can definitely have a more gradual or slowly progressive process, even if it's predominantly vascular in, in nature. And the prevention of this is really managing uh, vascular risk factors. 
So we've talked about Alzheimer's and vascular dementia, which are probably the two biggest causes of primary dementia. Um, let's move on to some of those less common, but still important uh, dementia syndromes to know about. Uh, how about Lewy body dementia? Yeah, so dementia with Lewy bodies uh, is, as the name implies, uh, associated with accumulation of Lewy bodies, which are really alpha synuclein deposits, intracellular alpha synuclein deposits, and uh, exists on a continuum or a spectrum with Parkinson's disease, which is probably our most famous synucleinopathy. And uh, dementia with Lewy bodies includes a triad of cognitive dysfunction uh, and um, Parkinsonism, so rigidity, slowness of movements, et cetera, and often hallucinations. And the typical classical hallucinations with dementia with Lewy bodies are visual uh, and, and often, not always, but often uh, of, of small things. Uh, so they tend to be small in size. People will describe seeing small people or animals or things like that, and they may or may not be disturbing uh, to the patient. Some other sort of classic features of dementia with Lewy bodies include, uh, some people will notice these, these abrupt fluctuations in their level of consciousness, and this can lead to hospitalization at times. I mean, we see this where somebody just suddenly becomes unresponsive, uh, and it's not related to a seizure or a stroke or anything like that, and it can last minutes or hours, uh, and then suddenly comes back. People with dementia with Lewy bodies are really sensitive to dopamine blocking agents. Uh, so you will often see this uh, huge uh, neuroleptic uh, uh, sensitivity. Uh, they become very altered with very low doses of, of neuroleptic medications. Uh, and um, like any of the other synucleinopathies, we can have REM behavior disorder, and that is acting out dreams, often violent dreams in a physical way because of a disturbance in the sleep-wake process and in, in the paralysis that's supposed to occur during REM sleep. And just, uh, just like the other dementia syndromes, no cure, um, but treatment includes cholinesterase inhibitors. Uh, and often people with dementia with Lewy bodies are very, at least initially, very responsive to cholinesterase inhibitors. If there's a significant overlap with Parkinsonism, then you may treat the Parkinsonism as you would Parkinson's disease in the various ways, which we won't get into. And because there's often psychiatric components, uh, SSRIs and, and uh, um, uh, it can be used. But as I said before, even if there's hallucination, uh, hallucinations, neuroleptics should be used with, uh, with caution, and you should, should certainly avoid the very strongly dopamine-blocking uh, neuroleptic medications. And finally, let's turn our attention to some of these frontotemporal syndromes of dementia. So frontotemporal dementia can be subcategorized into a couple of different variants. So there is a variant that is more associated with language dysfunction, uh, and that's the primary progressive aphasia. And there is a variant that at onset may have more prominent behavioral dysfunction, a behavioral variant, uh, at least at onset. And of the primary progressive aphasia, it's not that we need to get into this, but there is one that's more fluent and one that's more non-fluent. And as you might guess, the one that's more fluent is a little more temporal, and the one that is more non-fluent is a little more frontal. Uh, and the one that is more non-fluent is called the agrammatic variant, uh, and the one that is uh, fluent is, is some, sometimes called temporal, or sorry, semantic variant. Not that that's uh, that important, but just remembering that the frontal and temporal lobes, what they do, it's going to be behavior, executive functioning, and language, and you're going to have variants that are more behavioral and, and variants that are more 
language. And just as a side note, we do know that there is a cross, another Venn diagram between frontal temporal dementia and, um, and ALS, motor neuron disease. So there are uh, people with motor neuron disease who have syndromes that are similar to frontal temporal dementia. And then there is a genetic disorder with frontal temporal dementia and motor neuron disease at onset as well. So that just about covers the four common primary dementia syndromes. Now, in terms of the history and the physical examination for chronic cognitive complaints, do you have any general tips for medical students? Yeah, I think that you're going to want to start, the history is really going, the purpose of the history is going to be to get a sense of the time course, which as we said, is very important, is going to narrow your differential diagnosis. If this started yesterday, you're probably not thinking about Alzheimer's disease. If it started two years ago, you might be. Um, and to get any sense of any potential reversible, treatable, or secondary causes of dementia. You know, this all started after I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism. Okay, well, that might be relevant. Uh, and this all started after a traumatic brain injury, et cetera, et cetera. So you really, those are some of the purposes of history. You may on history get a sense of the domains of cognitive function. You know, somebody that is uh, used to be very mild-mannered and is all of a sudden swearing and lashing out and acting inappropriately, you might get a sense that they have a behavioral uh, type of problem. Somebody that's forgetting uh, things over and over might have a more uh, amnestic type of pattern. Somebody that's getting lost may have more of a visuospatial type of problem or a, or a visual spatial memory type of problem, et cetera, et cetera. So you can get those nuances. And then finally, you wanna get a sense of how much dysfunction this is causing. Somebody might say that their memory is poor, but say that they've never missed a bill, they've never missed a bank payment, they just got promoted in their job and they're otherwise uh, doing great. And, and that might give you a sense that that's very mild. Somebody else might downplay their memory problems, but their spouse or partner tells them that they've had to take over the banking or that they are really worried about them being able to drive safely, or they're really worried about them making mistakes at work, and they've been called into the boss's office over and over. You know, so sometimes getting to that function can really give you a sense of how severe the problem is and give you a slightly more objective sense of how severe the problem is, because subjectively, people are not always perfect at being able to judge how their cognitive problems might be affecting them. And lastly, is there a role for any further workup like imaging or labs? It really depends on your history and physical examination. And, and we talked a little bit earlier about physical exam. And like I said, if you're suspecting a neurodegenerative process, you're probably going to want to use some structured tool uh, to do the cognitive examination. And I'm not going to uh, promote any specific tool uh, on this podcast other than to say you can ask your attending physicians or residents uh, uh, for advice about which tools to use. Um, the um, investigations really are going to get at um, secondary causes of cognitive dysfunction, and that's going to depend on your history and physical examination. Reversible causes like nutritional deficiencies, certain types of slowly regressive infections, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in some cases, there are special tests uh, that may raise or lower your suspicion of Alzheimer's or other primary dementias, but it's really outside the realm of this uh, podcast and something that I must confess, I always have to ask an expert about what the current evidence is for various types of specialized tests.
All right. So thank you, Dr. Muller. And I think that wraps up our episode on cognitive complaints. We want to determine the type of cognitive complaint and, and otherwise the time course of that cognitive complaint. And within the type of cognitive complaint, we have the cognitive domains, which are in language, executive reasoning, learning and memory, perceptual motor functioning, and social cognition. And we discussed each one of those and how it relates to anatomy. And then when we talked about time course, we differentiated between the acute causes of cognitive issues and the most common being delirium and some of the chronic causes, uh, the primary dementia disorders. So thank you, Dr. Muller, and hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'll, I'll say, as I said, once more, I am not the world's expert on dementia. I do like doing a cognitive examination. For those of you who want to learn more about dementia and, and primary neurodegenerative processes, look back in our podcast feed, and there are some episodes about that. So uh, that you can enrich your content by doing so. 